Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. We ought to start right in. We have a coming attraction. We're determined to look at one company a week that uh, does not, isn't one of the companies that we were spending a lot of time on in the second quarter because the stock market had gone down so much. We thought, what a terrific time to look at the really well established larger companies, the Amazon, the Apple, the Microsoft, the Google, Salesforce, under the theory that, you know, with all, all stocks off, this was an opportunity to acquire these companies and, and, and members spend all the time on Tesla too, at, you know, something like a 5% free cash yield stock market up a rally and a fair market in July up considerably. We spend an awful lot of time on those companies. So starting three weeks ago, uh, Mike and I came up with this theory that we'd look at an individual company that was smaller, that, you know, Microsoft's a great company, Google's a great company, Amazon, but are you going to make three times on your money in five years? Most companies, probably not. I mean, if just from dividends and whatnot, you can double your money in five years, that's a 15% rate return. So we decided you only want to own about a dozen stocks. We focus on less well-established companies. So those who turn in every, tune in every Wednesday, remember that we did Shopify the first week and we did Snowflake this week and we'll get into Snowflake in a little bit. And I think we'll do chip equipment businesses for the next three weeks. So I think tentatively we're going to do land research next week. ASML the week after and plot materials the week after that. Now, remember, just because we're reviewing these companies doesn't mean that we think they're good investments, but we'll pull them apart. Mike will do his best. I'll do my best. And our goal is during the next 50 weeks to do one company per week and not to revisit them. Maybe occasionally we'll revisit, but have one new company every week. And when we get through a year of doing that, roughly 50 weeks, we're determined, or I'm determined, I think Mike thinks I'm being too optimistic, to find another 50 companies to look at under the theory that the more stones you, you, uh, you turn over, the more likely you are to find a, an investment that really will make a difference to your investment success. And keeping in mind that you only own 10 or a dozen companies, the goal is to have the values double every five years, you know, despite ups and downs, such as we've had it down this year or make 15% a year. I mean, that's a very high order of return. I mean, that, that's buffet like, but we think by limiting it to, you know, just 10 or a dozen companies and looking all the time for that company that, you know, will do more than double in five years that maybe goes three times or four times, that's an important way to try to think through this kind of investing. And with that, we'll get to Snowflake in a bit, but I just want to, as I always do, cover off oil and gas. And I want to also cover a theme and I'll, I'll be brief about this. So we have plenty of time for Snowflake, but oil pricing is 
somewhat weak. The statistics that come out show that miles driven, which pretty much determines gasoline consumption, was off 7% in July. I don't think it was, you know, macro or whatnot. I think it was just people, including all of us on the phone, adjusting their behavior, maybe doing one trip rather than two trips. So it was a reaction to high gasoline prices. In terms of the barrel of oil, gasoline is half the barrel or a little more than half the barrel. So I definitely is having an impact. And your WTI price now is 87, you know. All the people that said, hey, the next stop is 120 or whatnot, turns out that they were they wrong so far. Now, not to worry about oil going to $60 or $50. I mean, the two biggest economies in the world, the United States economy, we're kind of in recession. We've had two quarters of real GMP decline, and China clearly is in recession. Europe say, let's say that Europe is the third largest economy and Japan, the fourth, Europe has all the problems with energy and Russian gas and whatnot. So really there is more or less a worldwide recession, which will curtail some oil consumption. But I say the main thing is that U.S. consumers reacted by to high prices by just basically doing less driving and if miles driven or down 10%, I promise you, gasoline consumption is going to be down 10%. I mean, it's a very, that's the way it works. Natural gas, on the other hand, is like trading for nine and a half dollars. That's basically a function of electricity price being very high. The price of natural gas, the price of electricity are really coordinated. Those graphs lie on top of each other. I think what's happened in that market is that there's this big push led by the progressive wing of the Democratic Party to do more renewables. And the problem is that the people who signed on, including large companies, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, NextEra, to do this, signed agreements to sell power. And then the price of everything in a solar array went up. I mean, steel went up and silicon went up and most of the panels are made in China. Those days where they went up. So these people are dragging their feet, putting these things in because the more you do, the more money you're going to lose. They're not really in a position to go back since the regulators approve these contracts. They're not in a position to go back and say, hey, we need a higher price. But they, they so power is short. And the reaction of the ISOs, independent system operators, and the state commissions is. Keep those coal plants going. Keep those gas plants going. Don't meet though, which is in the middle of the country, the ISO, that you have to give it 12 months notice if you plan to close any power generation plant. So that's bull the price of natural gas. It's bull the price of coal. I mean, coal in the Illinois Basin a year ago is $40. It's now $150. Is that going to continue? That got me to thinking, and I'm going to be very brief on this, and then we can talk about it next week. It may be that the way to think about energy, and this is energy, whether you own solar or wind or oil production or gas, is try to be very efficient where you can replace your production using way less than half your cash flow. And that's hard to do, but that's one, try to have no debt, try don't hedge take advantage of volatility. And the way I measure volatility is ups and downs, but also from levels. I mean, gas two years ago was 250. 
death now for 25 is 450. That's a significant improvement. The gas this year is going to be $7. Gas next year is supposed to be $6. The current price for gas is $9. So, I mean, $9 is not a sustainable price, but the volatility up and down may be from successively higher levels. So that, that may be a, a theme to try to take advantage of from an investment point of view. But enough of that, we want to switch back and focus on Snowflake. And a good question to lead off, Mike's going to lead off on this, is we know the numbers and we have the 10 Qs here. If you have a Snowflake 10Q in front of you, we're going to refer to it later. But a good question, which Mike, I think, is uniquely qualified, is to explain exactly what Snowflake does for its customers. So over to you, Mike. Before we explain that particularly, I want to quickly talk about kind of what the history of enterprise data is. And then I'll hit that question, because I think that that's really important to understand the why as to where we are when it comes to enterprise data, it'll make Snowflake make a lot more sense. So pre-digital, everything was on paper, right? You may still have a doctor that you go to or a dentist that has a physical paper file of all of your stuff. And that's the way everything was done basically until the 1950s. In the 1950s, we got our first mainframe computers. In that period of time between the 50s and the 90s, there was a lot of innovation and development of data storage. And most of these mainframes were used for uh, high value applications where the impact of data loss had a really high cost. So think like a financial application like payroll or general ledger processing, stuff like that. During this period, Moore's law was established. The cost of memory was decreasing at an increasingly exponential rate. And, and all that kind of built up to what we know of as the dot-com bust, but really that dot-com era was driven by networking. So interconnecting computers so that they could talk to each other. That period of the, I guess, the 90s to the the 2000s, through the 2000s, we saw a lot of B2B applications spring up from ERP systems, to order management systems, billing systems, and the early CRM, customer relationship management systems. All that accelerated post-2010 with the advent of the cloud. And the concept of the cloud is relatively simple. And instead of data sitting on a machine in your office, it's instead sitting on a machine running in a data center somewhere else. And via networking and the internet, we're able to access that data and information and those services remotely. So in the cloud era, new applications were built from the ground up. Kind of the main one that everybody knows that IPO'd in 2012 was Salesforce as a CRM. But since then, you'll come to find that almost any business application you can think of, there is a cloud-based version that exists for it. So that kind of brings us to today and the the reality for most businesses is that they have a combination of data sources that span all the way back to some of them mainframe server-based systems to cloud-based sources. And as a result, it's all 
all this data is siloed and duplicated and not easy to access. The first challenge that sort of arises for these companies is the ability to get a complete view as to what's happening across your organization. Take, for example, a company that wants to get a view of your customer. You may have information about that customer in a CRM system. You may also have a separate billing system that has information about what they've purchased and the bills that have been sent out. You may have an order management system that may have details about what service they have. I tend to use examples related to telecom because that's where I started my career in consulting. So that would be kind of like your typical three silos of information. And that has been very difficult for businesses to link all that together and build a complete view of the customer. This is the first piece that Snowflake aimed to solve, and they called it a data lake. And the concept was, is you push this data up into their data lake and provide a centralized view of the organization's data on which queries and ultimately applications and projections could be built on top of. Since we're bringing everything into a central cloud platform on, on Snowflake, the organization has one source of data and as a result, the ability to serve that data to various parts of the organization. And it really boils down to utilizing the data that the business already has in a better way. So think about this. I'll use an example. If you remember, Delta Airlines had a complete shutdown of their service back in 2016 because their mainframe servers went down. In the postmortem of that, part of what came out is that just how much trouble they had maintaining the system, let alone developing new applications on it. And that boils down to the fact that colleges aren't teaching old technology. Colleges are teaching new technology. So the best and the brightest software engineers, they're not learning COBOL and Fortran. They know Python and JavaScript and whatnot. So those people by that very nature aren't interested in taking a job to go work with Delta to work on an old mainframe computer. They're going to take a job with Google or Amazon or Microsoft where they can develop with the latest and greatest and most cutting edge technology that they were taught. And I guess the second factor that's at play that kind of skews against your typical Fortune 500 company is that like 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. In software, arguably, that skew is even more extreme, where there's a few really good people that can get most of the work done. When you add the complexity of an antiquated system, you can see that it gets even harder for companies to build applications on their data. So by implementing Soflake, a business like Delta, for example, can move that data into Snowflake and then have a modern platform on which to build modern applications and a single source of data for the entire company. So it solves a lot of their problems. It actually long-term enables a strategic advantage as an incumbent because they have all this data and it provides a means for them to actually use it. And with Snowflake, they get modern data governance and data security that they would otherwise struggle to implement on their own. Absolutely, absolutely makes sense. Let me let me put it in another way that made sense for me and, and see whether what Mike thinks about this. I had the most difficult time trying to figure out what Snowflake did 
And because let's assume that the customer, at, they do business now with like 400 out of the 500 largest companies, and they're doing at least a million dollars of revenue a year with like 300 of them. So it's very impressive what they've been able to do. But I thought, you know, why, you know, okay, so they're, they're increasingly, everyone's moving to keeping their information in their server farms rather than their own machines in their office. It's more secure. It's more efficient. The cost of storage has gone way down. But why doesn't Amazon or Microsoft or Google, which is kind of number three in cloud storage, why aren't they providing this capability? And I finally think I've got it in my head from a description that, that Mike had from his consulting. He said, let's, let's think of a relatively small customer that has 10 IP professionals. And let's say two of them are really way ahead of the other. Um, they have the job, and let's say one of the two runs the department. They have the job of getting good productivity out of the other eight. What Snowflake enables you to do is write application programs, ways of using the data that's stored, that is in storage, to get useful reports. So in effect, if all 10 of, of the IT professionals were equally gifted, they could just write their own software. I mean, they could do it. It might take a little longer, but since eight of the 10 don't have that capability, what Snowflake enables them to do is it's software that enables you to write your own application. Now, that may be a gross oversimplification, so I'm going to turn it back to Mike. But if that's true, I think there's a real function for Snowflake out of the 10Q, we're going to get into the numbers in a minute, but see if, see if I can confirm or add to my kind of getting in my head, what, what exactly, what service does Snowflake provide? So once again, over to you, Mike. So you're, you're spot on back to the Delta Airlines example. They've got a sprawling system. They've got the system that manages all the flights. They've got the system that manages all the ticketing. They're probably run on older technology. But at the end of the day, they need to use that data to make predictions about how to set prices in the future. They need to make predictions. Maybe they hedge their fuel consumption. Maybe they need to make predictions as to how they're going to do all these things. If you have to build the whole stack from the ground up, source the data from the multiple different silos in which they live, rationalize the data so that you're not working with dirty data and it's, it's not duplicated, and then build an application on top of all that, it's just harder and takes more time and requires a deeper skill set. The concept of Snowflake is they take that big chunk of the architecture of building applications out and say, hey, you have all this data. You need to have it all in one space. One, you can do reporting on it. Two, once it's here, you can build applications on it. Three, once it's here, you can maybe sell some of it. For example, take the company FactSet, who's a, a data provider to the financial services industry. They sell their data sets through the Snowflake platform. So take a small fund like Topmark, like our fund. Historically, 
if you were Bridgewater back in the day, like in the 90s or the 2000s, you were developing a lot of these data sets in-house on your own, potentially on your own servers and mainframes. Now for us, and this is part of the way we see our future, is we're going to be able to develop our own applications in-house at a much lower cost than what previous hedge funds have spent to build data applications. So it makes it much, much easier to move down the stack. Now, whether we choose to go with something like Snowflake or one of the other things that are out there is a whole other story. But the point is that it makes it feasible with far fewer people to accomplish what you're looking to do. A great explanation. If you turn to page seven of the 10Q, it felt like it's on a odd year. So the first quarter ends April 30, 2022. This was filed in late May. So we'll see the second quarter of their, what I guess is their fiscal 23 sometime probably uh, next week. But going back to the April numbers, one of the neat things about Snowflake, which is page seven, the balance sheet, is that they are not going to fail. They have no requirement to raise additional money or to borrow money. There is, it was in April as there was at the end of their fiscal year in January, between cash and short-term investments, treasury bills and whatnot, there was the better part of about three and a half billion dollars of cash on hand. The other good news is that the cash on hand and the short-term investments was about the same in April as it was in January, and their current liabilities were about the same. And what that means is that during that quarter, they generated more cash than they used. You'll remember that some of the things we looked at, software businesses, where Michael and others were saying, view it in terms of market value times revenue. This business is actually beginning to generate cash flow. So there's no debt. There is a fair amount of current liability. Again, page seven of the 10Q, there's a billion, 133 million of deferred revenue. What that is, is customers have sent them cash and they haven't earned it yet. In other words, they haven't provided the service. So some part of that three and a half billion dollars is represented by that billion one. But, you know, I don't really view that as a current liability like an account payable. What it is, is people have paid you money in advance to provide the service. I view it as kind of, hey, uh, you know, we have a billion one of future revenues in-house. As far as the shares outstanding, I stumbled over this and Mike had to straighten me out, but there are a little more than 300 million shares outstanding and it trades for $160, $170. So basically the market value of Snowflakes is around $50 billion and you could take off a couple of million dollars for having extra cash on hand. We're going to run out of runway here, but if you turn to page 11 of the 10Q, you will see that the cash provided by, by the business in that first quarter, that first three months was $185 million. This business is growing rapidly without consulting engineering research reports or 
being what guidance the company gives. I think it's a fair bet that for the fiscal year ended next January, in other words, the end of January 23, that number of cash provided from operations is going to be at least a billion dollars. What does that mean? If the company's trading for 50 billion, in other words, the 300 million shares trading for 160 or 170, wherever it is, is $50 billion. That means that your free cash yield is around 2%. You'll remember we were trying to figure out where we could buy Tesla at a free cash yield of, of 5%. Here, this would only be 2%. You could reject that 2% as just being too low. And maybe that is the right answer. But if your growth managed by free cash flow is going up 30% a year, do, is it reasonable to expect that you're going to be able to buy something at a 5% free cash yield? Just roughly speaking, if the stock is 160 and it's 2%, you'd have to get it all the way down to 70 or $80 to get to a 5% free cash yield. Is that reasonable? Is that likely to happen? And one thing you can do owning only a dozen stocks or 10 stocks is you can take what professional investors would call a research position. What does research position mean? Maybe you just buy 20% of what you'd like to eventually own. That way, if it never sees $80 or never sees, let's say it never trades much below 160, you at least own some. You found the company, you've looked at it, you've decided, you understand it, and you're buying a 2% free cash yield, which isn't that comfortable, but you only buy 20 or 25% of what you eventually hope to own. Have I, what have I misstated, Mike? Where have I, where am I getting out of a disciplined approach there? No, I think that makes a lot of sense. The fundamental question is, do we think that this company is going to continue to grow for the foreseeable future? At that point, you have to weigh what is the likelihood of new entrants, how, what kind of a moat, if you will, are they developing so that they don't lose customers to other platforms? I think they're well positioned and being the, this is one of those situations where being the incumbent or the first mover is really going to play well to their position. Again, they play really well to Fortune 500 companies, sort of well to brand new and startups, but there are other solutions that might work for brand new companies and startups. They really, really work well for legacy businesses. So there's no shortage of legacy businesses and they all need this sort of solution. So I think it's a pretty good look going forward. Thinking about valuation, the other thing that should be discussed, and we talked about this quite a bit the last couple of years because SaaS valuations got very, very high, including Snowflake near the IPO. If you remember, it doubled on the first day. I think that we're in a relatively normal place when it comes to valuations. It's really hard to tell because cloud software companies have not been around in a high interest rate environment. So if we go into a higher interest rate environment, that may change the way these companies are valued. But all that, uh, all that being said, you could see a situation where the company is worth for 20x revenue in the future. So that 2% free cash yield, maybe that's a lower end valuation. And then 
anything can kind of happen in between there. Yeah, no, that's great. And we won't abandon you. We'll do lamb research next week, but we'll, we'll spend at least five minutes or so on additional thinking on Snowflake. With that, everyone, uh, stay healthy, stay well, and we'll talk next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. 